I think I just wanted to start by really talking about like the first question, which is just um, what are you working on right now? What, what's exciting? Who you've been thinking about, thinking with? The fuck? Sorry, my backpack just fell off my bed. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're we're finishing up a book together, um, which is really exciting. Um, it's called Stanzas for Four Hands, colon, an ophanim, which is a crazy fucked up angel uh, from the book of like a bunch of wings and like a thousand eyes um, and just fucking cool ass, you know, kind of reclaiming the panopticon for the people type of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, like how did it start? How did we start writing it? I mean, we were just kind of like, yeah, we, no, we, we should fucking write a book. Yeah, we kept saying we need to have a collaborative project going on and then we just never did anything and finally started texting and then eventually we're like, okay, let's just dump some poems in a, in a Google Doc and then edit them as time goes on. Uh, and then we, we have a lot of poems in there from the beginning where the project was to like begin to write a poetics through the poetry and comment on the poetry as we were going in order to establish that poetics. Um, oh, wow. And I think the, I'll turn my screen off. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Where'd you go, Matilda? Wait, I can, I can hear you more. Yeah, we're, what happened? <laughs> I think I, I just like the magnet from my jewel turned the screen off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, the, that was like the project to like write and establish this like, uh, uh, like establishing a militant poetics and like, you know, whatever, whatever a Marxist poetics could look like. Um, and we'll get into that further. But like the project definitely morphed from like a, like a, I, I don't know what you would call it, like just this syncretic kind of verse of ours, like overlapping and writing over each other to like two like strains were kind of emerging out of it. And so it's like our own kind of grappling with our individual subjectivities kind of like just combined in uh, this, this book, mm. which uh, it's been insanely fun to write and I'm really excited for it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah what, and what else it, would you add? Yeah, it was it was super fun because like you know writing poems is kind of a lonely ass thing to do most of the time. Um, especially if you have any sort of collectivist, you know, tendencies. It just mm -hmm. feels like, what the fuck am I doing to like, you know, like enact, you know, this sort of you know, rejection of like you know, a bourgeois subjectivity and privacy. And right. these regimes of knowledge and you know cultural production that like have been fucking us and the entire world up for you know five you know centuries, um, but it 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 also was kind of a cool kind of like stylistic experiment because some of the poems in there are like you know uh, like Matilda would write three lines and then I would write three lines and then it kind of become this dialectic thing. Yeah. Um, some of them were just kind of coherent you know short poems or prose poems that like um we would write ourselves and then you know I'd write a different one mm -hmm. um so some of them are more kind of you know interwoven with you know these two you know ideas of what like a militant poetic should be um and some of them are like you know individually um like you know coherent pieces that um kind of play off each other in that way so there are different forms of like a dialectical engagement which I thought was really exciting yeah, no, that sounds yeah. great. C can I ask, um, with with the actual like form that you're working on, is 
so obviously you're getting ideas from all over the place, but um, are, is there any specific, anything you've drawn on to kind of get to that place where you're writing together and like how you're actually like doing the, you know, the methodology of like how you're actually putting it together? Um, or is it just like kind of on the spot? Uh, I think it's a little bit of here, a little bit of there, but I think, you know, since, you know, Matilda is currently writing um, a project on, you know, poetics, um, I think she might be good to start off that answer. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, most of my studies, like right now, re revolve around um, Sean Bonney, Mark Hughes, Mark Fisher, Jameson, um, and then specifically in terms of like the poets I'm looking at, it's mainly like Sean Bonney and Ben Lerner. Um, and, you know, I actually, come to think of it, haven't even gotten to the Ben Lerner aspects of this yet. But um, yeah, basically, you know, uh, Bonnie and Lerner are able to like, you know, kind of act as these like gravitational subject, subjects, which are just kind of like, you know, are, are going through the social sphere, like collecting uh, material from the people around them. Mm. And so they're able to like recuperate that material in their own poetry and, and in doing so, you know, kind of enacts a, a collectivity that is spoken through one subject. Um, and I know that's something, at least me in, in like my practice, I'm interested in because like, and this is something I probably get from like the language poets of just like, you know, the way Ron Silliman would like keep a notebook on him and just like write down almost every sentence he heard for like years mm -hmm. at a time. Um, and so, I mean, I, I'm a huge eavesdropper. Like one of the things about quarantine I miss the most is eavesdropping on people. Um, <laughs> and just like, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm very interested into how like, you know, Bonnie specifically in the commons, like, you know, does a thing where it's, he, he has a line where he's like, I cannot escape who I am, or like, I cannot leave I, etc. Um, which is like a, a counter Whitman that he poses himself as instead of like this universalizing figure. He's like a collectivist subject in a sense of just like, you know, you're able to hear the the like strains of multiple voices uh, as they're like modulating through his so even while it isn't a um collectively composed work you know you can hear the valences of you know the, the social relations in it mm. i think um and so maybe that's something in terms of like you know me and dom can probably hear each other's voices in the poetry but like someone else might maybe people who like are really familiar with the work can tell whose is whose but like there are some poems where, like, I, I forget which one of us wrote which. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that, that's a similar thing I've had with uh, other collective experiments like this. Like, I used to write a lot of Ulipo poems and, like, you know, do Ulipo experiments with friends. Um, and, like, when, when we'd come to, like, later stages in the process, it's like, we didn't remember who wrote what stanza, you know? So the, so the verse kind of transforms into a, to a communal uh, property, almost. And, you know, it kind of just lifted from being just just my poem you know it's our poem now um yeah <laughs> no that uh, that's a fantastic answer thank you yeah Don't yeah i think it's also that. important to uh for u.s born poets to say you know outright fuck walt whitman um <laughs> i i am that's right I, I love walt whitman's poetry i think you know aesthetically it's yeah amazing. but <laughs> his collective subject was undoubtedly uh, the way he self, you know, justifies slavery, the way he justifies, you know, imperialism. I am the poet of the master and the slave. Like Exactly. It's just like, we just like you, man. The fact that people like still can identify with like Whitman as a universalizing figure is something like, you know, 
U.S. poetry needs to reckon with, you know. Yes. As yes. much as I love my advisor, and he's a huge Whitman fan, and so like you know, whenever I like talk about Bonnie as a counter Whitman, he's like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah but like, yeah, I mean, like, look, like he was gay as hell, and he fucked, and that's awesome. <laughs> we love that, but. <laughs> he was also writing in the fucking New York Daily News, we have to invade Mexico and, you know, <laughs> yeah. seize that land in order to spread democracy. So there mm -hmm. is this root cause. He's always been considered like the father of American poetry or whatever. And like that, you know, imperial drive mixed with, you know, like an impulse towards, uh, you know, freedom and democracy. Those things are co-constitutive. That is how U.S. poetics works. And Absolutely. we can't escape that unless we start, you know, naming it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay, there's like so many directions I want to head in. Yes. <laughs> no, this is great. This is like fantastic. I'm like, oh, oh and, and I don't need to backtrack. I, I, do, I also wanted to ask real quick, um, how much of a relationship did you have before you started writing this book? Like, how, how, how did you get to know each other? Mm. <laughs> how, like, Twitter mutuals forever. Yeah. Um, what, how, when did we, like, exchange numbers and, like, start texting texting i mean it would have to be over a year ago that yeah, we like started right? dming all the time because we only like facetime for the first time like this summer yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and we've never like met in person so <laughs> no we never met in mostly person because yet. of the you know pandemic <laughs> and stuff um, right right but um, right i mean there were there was going to be a proletarian poetry party in boston right with, yeah with the, you were, yeah so i probably would have come up for that there were yeah. there were these proletarian poetry readings we were holding last year. Um, I've, I've been to them in Philly, in Brooklyn, and in Chicago. Um, I, I specifically helped organize the Brooklyn and Chicago ones, and they were beautiful events um, with like just wonderful like-minded poets and just like incredible audiences at these things. Like the fact that we had packed rooms of people wanting to hear communist poetry was an insane like Thing I didn't know could happen <laughs> you know as someone like new to leftism at the time and like new to just like m Marxist art um it, it was beautiful and and inspiring to just like be with these people in person um and so like you know I hope going forward after the pandemic those those continue <laughs> yeah definitely um I didn't go to any of those because I am unfortunately uh, in a PhD program that requires me to, uh, yeah. you know, I was teaching and TAing and mm -hmm. starting like at, you know, field exams and a prospectus and a dissertation chapter. So I uh, would have had way more fun at a proletarian poetry party, but unfortunately <laughs> I had to do academic bullshit. So it's okay. the, the feds were there in your stead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, sorry for like diverting, going backtracking. I just wanted to. Oh, no worries. Oh, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, you're good, dude. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess there's two different directions I want to head. Um, I think we can come back because I, I want to keep talking about um, kind of this uh, maybe conflict that you're posing between like Whitman and Bonnie or kind of this imperial U.S. poetry versus this um, maybe Milton poetics or what, you know, um, something like this. Um, but before we, we can come back to that, maybe when we talk more about your, um, if we can talk about your theses a little bit later. Um, for now, I kind of want to keep on the track of like um, talking about these, you know, um, these proletarian readings. Uh, I, I think I have a specific question in the document about um, uh, or maybe I don't. Um, 
Well, okay, but basically, what what is so poetry on the left today? Like, the, 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 you, just before the pandemic, you started to have these proletarian readings, things like this. Um, what's exciting you about this, like left poetry right now? What's frustrating stuff like that? What, where does it need to go in your mind? I don't know. Big question, I guess. Yeah, uh, I mean, Dom, pick this up. Like, do you want to do you want to start with this? Uh, I think we have to get rid of the Poetry Foundation. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that is kind of like a minimal demand. Um, I, I think it's less about like who is writing good poetry and who's writing bad poetry and more about what is, you know, in a kind uh, like a Benjaminian sense of what, how can we make the author a producer? You know, yeah. how can we get to that point mm -hmm. in time where like poets who need to survive don't have to take blood money from the pharmaceutical industry. You know, lots of people have already said this is not like a, you know, like a new idea, um, you know, like Jamie Baru and other people yeah. have written very, very eloquently on those problems. Um, but it bears repeating, you know, because we can't have another fucking open letter going on by some people who yeah. won the Ruth Lilly Foundation prize. Or all, I'm all. sorry. They were all Ruth Lilly fellows. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. Oh <laughs> that also has to be in the transcription it the cat, yeah. <laughs> um no yeah the um i i think uh the the original kind of uh, orbit i found myself in which i think was where we first kind of became familiar with each other's work was uh in the the like social the the online space which was created by paintbucket.page which is run by uh Commander James, I don't know his last name, James, <laughs> James Cactus. Cactus. Um, <laughs> uh, and like, you know, the, that page is kind of tapered out in, uh, in terms of like the work it's putting out. But that was where most of us became familiar with each other's work in the summer of 2019. Um, and you know, people like Roy and James um, and uh, I wanna say you probably were in the scene way longer than like I got on this kind of Twitter sphere. Um, that much longer, but maybe, yeah. yeah. But like, you know, Roy specifically always would like, uh, at cre Creeping Braxist on Twitter, um, would always like, you know, mention like how, you know, he's he's seen these kind of waves of poets come in the past and like, you know, how most of them like will just kind of fade out of existence. But like the, the kind of school, for lack of a better word, of poetics and poetry that was uh, coming to fruition at this time through Paint Bucket was really, um, coming to prominence uh, in, or like agitating against <laughs> astro poets, against the Poetry Foundation, you know, just just like the grifters of, of uh, the contemporary poetry. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Sung has a poem in, on Paint Bucket about like, you know, I'm going to burn down a corporate, or like shoot up, whatever. It's like, you know, <laughs> She had to be censored when we put it on Twitter because you <laughs> cannot say that on Twitter. <laughs> um, <and> so like, <laughs> but but yeah, it was it was the first kind of um, uh, atmosphere of work I'd been exposed to where people were articulating, you know, were articulating artistically this this palpable rage at the contemporary production of poetry, which like you know, hitherto that I had just been complacent with and like didn't even it didn't even figure in my mind as something which could be changed or needed to be changed and it really this opened my poetic radicalization if you could call it that um 
yeah and so you like you know and after like Pain Bucket was where I found out about Prolit, Protean. I, I started a press called Marl's Karks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Barut was running the Trans, right, Trans Woman Writers Collective at the time. Um, any Anyone else back then? Uh, is Best Prolet. Buds Collective in, in that at all? Yeah, Best Buds. Best, Best Buds. Um, well, it's now Greenland. Um, yeah. Oh, um, Recenter Press, probably. Yeah, yeah Recenter you know and so basically like almost everyone who is involved in this is like now a a poetic distributor or producer in some sense you know one one word or the other um or like you know and if they're not directly in a a a head of one of these presses they're involved in it somehow you know like they're they're really kind of (laughs) morphous beings which just kind of morph into and out of each other like dom is an editor at uh protean but also is like a what, what do you call it? Central committee member at yeah. <laughs> And uh, where, I'm sorry? At a Wo-Aroa, right. which is spelled insanely. It's a poem from David Melnick. But um, it, uh, it is basically just what I rebranded Marl's Karks as after like multiple mental breakdowns and the pandemic. And then I was just like, I need a new thing. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that's been a kind of rearticulation of this. And we actually, uh, we, we have our first book. Oh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, it's the margins are printed really bad because it's my first time printing with this press. So, but the cover looks great. I I saw the pictures of the cover, I I love it. Thank you. I'm very happy with it. It is so fucking sick. (laughs) But, yeah, I don't. Do you have anything you want to add to that? There's also Radical Paper Press, which I feel like we have to mention, uh, (laughs) despite the fact that, unfortunately, uh, yeah, I think we're both currently blocked by the person who runs that. for a variety of reasons that probably we shouldn't get into, <laughs> but they they yeah. were like a pretty big force on the thing. That was a huge, um, yeah, you're totally right. And you know they they you know he published really good people. I mean, he published Ryan X, who's in you know incredible. I think that's how you think. Up from him. up from some dirt. Yeah, yeah, up from some dirt. He's amazing. Zainel Seuss. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, Cassandra Troy and like people yeah, who yeah, have yeah, books yeah. coming out right now. Yeah, know, a lot of them were getting published there, like chap, really nicely printed and produced chapbooks mm-hmm. and broadside. So you know, yeah. I feel like maybe like you know put in Radical Paper Press as like one of the like forerunners, but I don't really want to start more shit that like because yeah. there are plenty know, of people who talk shit online and have said all the stuff that we could say sure. about yeah, exactly places like Radical Paper Press. So. Mm-hmm. um I don't really feel the need to go back to that stuff, but I did want to mention them as one of the big forces that was going on at yeah. that time. Yeah, okay. absolutely. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay. Oh my God, your cat is adorable. <laughs> this is only one of them. Oh, yeah. There's a whole other cat. <laughs> Olive and then Ruby. Olive. <laughs> oh, that was good. I needed that. <laughs> Maybe now is a good time um, if, if we could maybe revisit this um, kind of the, maybe how you're positioning your work kind of maybe in contrast to this sort of imperial poetic style. I know your thesis is sort of in this realm and maybe both of your theses are kind of in this realm in different ways. Um, if you want to talk I think, about I think Dom's probably more overtly so if yeah. you want to go first. Or yeah, I mean, I think like, like so I think we are both kind of writing 
two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, I feel like, you know, Matilda, you're trying to articulate a positive kind of poetics that is, uh, you know, reaching towards something that is more utopian. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, my dissertation is basically rereading uh, Charles Olson, the Amir Baraka, Lawrence, the Ferlinghetti, Walter Lowenfels, uh, Earls, um, Salinas, and Carolyn Forche um, for that sort of, you know, imperial, you know, impulse. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are all poets who, you know, were considered leftists, you know, uh, some of whom are, you know, more canonical and some of whom are more peripheral. Um, but like, you know, we, you know, think of beat poetry as like, you know, like they're anti-authoritarian, they value freedom and, you know, free expression and free love. And a poet like Ferlinghetti um, went to Cuba, wrote, you know, very positively about Castro, um, uh, you know, in the Cuban project, uh, but also at the same time was like deeply, deeply invested in this concept of, you know, you know, democratic American continent that is straight from Whitman. Um, and that, you know, very, very often involves these weird kind of racialized fantasies. Um, so in one of his, um, um, you know, writings on Cuba, he, you know, ends it by imagining this, um, well, he's leaving Cuba and he's getting on the plane and Cuba, you know, the island itself becomes this, you know, uh, he calls it a white whale and, you know, it gets, you know, harpooned and, and, and it sinks into the blackness, you know, of the sea. And, you know, the Cuban revolution was an explicitly pro-black, you know, anti-American, you know, revolution. Um, you know, even though it didn't start out as explicitly Marxist or anything. Um, and so for him to go in 1960 and that be his sort of takeaway that there's this kind of, you know, racialized anxiety about um, whiteness being slaughtered and being kind of, you know, absorbed, you know, into this threatening blackness, I think is really important. And you have to take that, um, you know, like in tandem with the fact that he wrote, you know, a kind of weird, you know, homage to, you know, Castro um, called uh, uh, 1000 Fearful Words for Fidel Castro, um, which is just like, the CIA is going to fucking kill you, dude. I don't know what I'm going to mm. do. I feel so bad. I'm sitting in Mike's fucking, you know, deli you know, eating <laughs> a sandwich and I know you're going to die. Um, and yeah, so I think like rereading these, you know, uh, you know, American leftist poets for that, you know, core, you know, fundamental wound of imperialism, which is always genocidal um, and always anti-Black um, is, you know, is really important. And in the same chapter that I'm writing, you know, um, I talk about, you know, a poem by Baraka, um, you know, in which he, you know, was also looking at the Cuban soil and a um, Black head bursts out of the soil and it totally interrupts, you know, the narrative of the poem. Um, and it totally freezes the, you know, kind of temporal constraints, you know, of the poem. And then he moves on and, you know, uh, talks about, you know, his experience with, you know, kind of like erotically, kind of politically talking about, you know, these Mexican um, uh, revolutionaries who went to Cuba and basically told him like, listen, you're a fucking imperialist. Like, you're, you don't want to write about politics? Then, you know, when you're an American, it doesn't matter 
that, um, you know, you are like, you know, a black poet writing, you know, in Bohemia, because, you know, Bohemia is the product of, you know, imperial desire. And that changed his whole life, you know? Um, and he rejected beat poetics after that. So that's, that's kind of, you know, one example of this paradox that I think is really interesting. Yeah, right. So like when he, almost him, him, him going, leaving downtown, going uptown, going up to Harlem is almost uh, this real transition. Yeah, yeah, which is where Castro stayed too when he visited America, you know? Um, he, uh, he, he went there and, you know, that was really important to a lot of the, you know, black radical, you know, communists, uh, you know, and anarchists and stuff who were there. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping I'll get the chance to read your thesis at some point. It sounds, I mean, just like really uh, poignant at this moment. Thanks. I hope I get the chance to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Um, okay. Well, so maybe we have, I, I guess you framed it in a really great way. Um, so I guess maybe we have like a negative critique um, of, of this kind of, this sort of poetics, this Whitman-esque um, type of American democracy poets, um, poetry. Um, so maybe Matilda, you could maybe, if, if you want to talk at all about your more utopian, positivistic, that, that side of the dialectic. Right. I find it funny to consider it positivistic because it it almost feels to me that it's articulating in negation, but I see it as being the opposite of this coin at the same time. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm like, I begin like the, the first half of my thesis so far is like, you know, I almost don't talk about poetry at all. Like, you know, almost the way like Bifo in finance and poetry, like never talks about poetry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh uh, basically, I'm trying to consider, like, you know, what what role does poetry as like a, a, a psychosomatic production uh, do or have in uh, a revolutionary atmosphere, or uh, well, what role it plays in that sense? He's really um, interested in uh, in alchemy, in you know, um, yeah, all all of his art kind of like you know has a um, a, a like. 1300s manuscript vibe about it. You know, he's, he's just really interested in this kind of like archaicism. Um, yeah, and so, you know, I, I use, you know, capitalist realism as like, you know, the dominant psychic reality principle and then acid communism as like being that which toward we, we strive in, in, a, in articulating a poetics against capitalist realism. You know, and I, I write about 100 Gex early on as like, you know, a kind of art which, you know, is, is, is um, and I think we can talk about Heriberto Yepes in a minute if you want, Dom, because this is where um, I talk about, his work is really crucial to like a lot of our recent thinking. Um, but let me, sorry, getting excited <laughs> ahead of myself. <laughs> um, Basically, I talk about the way 100 Gex, <laughs> this sounds so silly. In <laughs> <my guess. laughs> um, but uh, the way 100 Gex is like, you know, using the form of late capital and it's it's kind of like the, the frenetic psychic qualities of late capital. Um, and like, you know, what, what Bonnie calls like the poetry of advertising and consumer society. Um, you know, I talk about the way in which like, uh, some remixes like you know are just the, the the like baseline beat is just composed of car honks in some of them and like you know it's this insane kind of like thing that you shouldn't find pleasure in it should be annoying but of the way in which it's like these insane sounds at such a high level of production it produces a an enjoyable chaos which is 
insanely marketable and uh, and pleasurable to like a contemporary like Gen Z person. Um, and like, so I use that kind of as like, you know, uh, something which like embodies a, a sort of conceptualism um, and like, you know, uh, like Dom, Dom, can you explain Gabe Pez's construction of conceptualism? Cause I'm like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's one poem which does it really well, which is post, post Gulf War poetics. Oh wait, I, are you talking about um, in transnational battlefield? Oh, I was, but do you have a oh, Okay, answer? sorry, I was looking at. Yeah, okay, that one probably does it even better. But um, Yepes basically has this one poem where he's like, Ameri uh, American government texts, American government oil, American uh, conceptual poets text, how to appropriate everything. And so it's just like, it show, it's, it's this really awesome like metonymy of, of uh, imperialism of just like, Kenneth Goldsmith goes and appropriates the death of this black boy uh, as a poem. And like, you know, in the way that movement and that form is the same as, you know, what drives capital to appropriate and to extract, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the same movement and embodying the same form, just that different uh, uh, social planes. Um, and so we talk about 100 gecks in relation to like what someone like Rimbaud or Bonnie are trying to do uh, in terms of like, you know, doing because Bonnie also takes on this like frenetic um schizophrenic kind of paranoia in his verse um and you hear it when he reads his poetry but like you know it doesn't stop there because he's not just writing within the form of capital he's writing at, at capital's highest like anarchic entropy and then trying to at the same time articulate a militant poetics against it yeah I kind of feel like that <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> When I read Bonnie, I can't, you know, help but think of like, uh, like Naked Lunch, um, or uh, like, like Hunter S. Thompson's writing, and you know, kind of as a really important uh, development of that, because when you read Thompson and when you read Burroughs, um, there is this, you know, really kind of like asphyxiating uh, prose, um, you know, in their work, and. Um, Bonnie seems to be channeling that, but, you know, like you say, you know, articulating something against that, like right. this, right. this, um, you know, dramatization of, you know, capitalist realism, which if we take it as like vaguely synonymous with neoliberalism, um, yeah, of course. Is it, it, it what is. Is, yeah. yeah, like is what's happening when, you know, Burroughs and, you know, those, you know, other writers are, you know, kind of writing and, you know, Bonnie's kind of reflecting on that and like pulling that into, you know, a different, you know, kind of more revolutionary context. Um, yeah. and, and I also want to say, you know, the, the extractive poetics that you, you're talking about with 100 Gex, um, which my girlfriend <laughs> showed me the other day. And I was like, she was like, I love this song. <laughs> yeah, check it out. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, oh, my God, there's such a generational gap now. I as a millennial. <laughs> um, but you know, what is the, you know, extractive, you know, like performance of like a Goldsmith poem, you know, reading right. Michael Brown's autopsy report, which like, fuck you, man. Um, like that logic is absolutely the same as, you know, Whitman's and as, you know, like uh, Ferlinghetti's because, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I also read about Charles Olson, exactly. and he goes, you know, to, you know, Maya Ruins, you know, in Yucatan. 
And he literally extracts stones and steals glyphs and pottery and stuff, you know, at the encouragement of his other white, you know, kind of like pseudo archaeologist friend. And he writes these letters, you know, to Robert Creeley, where he's like, you know, uh, this, this, you know, like indigenous person told me, uh, you know, that I wasn't allowed to, you know, pick through the ruins that have been crushed recently by a construction company, you know, at the behest of the Mexican state. Um, and uh, so I did it anyway at night and I stole, you know, these stones. And, um, you know, my, my work starts with that because that is like, you know, the primitive accumulation of, you know, mid-century white poetics. Um, it's Fuck. always going to be attractive. And, yeah. and the fact that that same logic, you know, is at play in, you know, 100 Yaks or, you know, in Goldsmith <laughs> or something. I mean, really, like the evidence is overwhelming. It is a fundamental thing. And I think that's kind of what connects our projects too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, wow. I'm just, Sorry. No, no, this is this is crazy. This is great. This is I'm I'm so happy. Um, my, my girlfriend has a joke that she likes to tell, which is like, in all intimacy, she asks me like, "Do you think 100 Gex could tell you what the Enlightenment is?" <laughs> and and it's just like you really have to sit there and think about it because it's like I. I can't tell you what intention is behind it. I just know it occupies this form. And it's just like, if 100 Gex were to like read what I think about them, <laughs> like, like I like the music or whatever, but it's like, I know it occupies this just insane logic of capital in it. Problematic fave. Problematic, yeah, cancel. <laughs> Alf Gehoven. Yep. <laughs> so a lot of the project of Future Machine is kind of looking for work that is utopian, future-oriented, or speculative. Uh, Dom, I know in your interview with the Marxist Poetry Podcast, you started getting into um, some speculative poetics, and both of you, you know, obviously you're talking about a lot of different thinkers. There, Marcuse, who's you know the utopian of the Frankfurt School, and all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't have like a, a super specific question, but like. What, what do you what, what value do you see in, in the speculative poetics maybe is a good way to frame it yeah sure so um i think one of the things that you know me and matilda were talking about uh right before this actually was like the need for you know poets to be be, be very precise in their terminology um, and I feel like one of the reasons why I took a more anti-utopian stance on that podcast um, was because a lot of the stuff that passes for utopian sucks um, and is being, you know, published by these foundations and organizations and magazines that have no interest in making good on that promise of utopia. Um, mm -hmm. So I you know, I'm also, you know, I'm a fucking Marxist. So, and Marx was definitely not utopian, was, you know, uh, reacting against that entire, you know, kind of socialist school. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very important to me for, if you're going to, uh, you know, develop a kind of speculative, you know, poetics, that that speculation, you know, is rooted in history um, and, you know, materialist history specifically, um, uh, which is why, you know, I think a lot of this stuff um, and Ophanim in our book, um, you know, kind of digs through this weird kind of messy archive. Like we have these kind of quotes um, from yeah. various uh, either like newspapers or scholarship or whatever that um, kind of tries to historicize what we're talking about. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so like there's like tangential frames to certain poems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's one that I put in recently that was um, a New York Daily Herald, I think, article from the 19th century that was like um, uh, that the Mexicans will learn to love their ravishers, like the the the, the Sabine virgins. Um, speaking of, you know, the annexation of Texas and Colorado and, you know, whatever. Um, so like that is, I think, an example of like, okay, we're speculating on it, like, you know, in the actual, you know, text of the poem is, you know, very speculative and can be kind of like, you know, compressing, you know, you know, historical periods or, you know, moments of our own personal experience. But that, that moment is grounding it still. Um, yeah. So there's, there's very little um depoliticization that a reader of these poems can actually do to it mm. and i think creating that shield um where you kind of want to protect the integrity of the of the uh, you know of the material of what you're drawing from um mm. and not just like pull from an archive and then um you know quote it in a poundian or you know zukovsky style mm. uh, but actually have it being there you know as a like coherent mm. thing you know at the side of the page um, uh, kind of creates this dialectic between you know speculation, which is you know always sort of uh, you know kind of future oriented, and um, this past kind of oriented thing where it's like just because you're speculating, it doesn't mean it's new. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I think that's really important, as like you know the stock market being the fucking like you know perfect example of that. <laughs> it, it it makes me think of um, the third of your love poems in Prolit. Um, where you're saying not to, you know, get so lost in imagining the future that, you know, you lose the referent um, or yeah. you, know, um, you have to really, maybe there's a big relationship between the past and future speculation in, in this kind of formulation. Is if that's at all right? Yeah, totally. I actually hadn't even thought of the connection between um, that poem and the, uh, the um, uh, kind of poetics that I'm currently trying to develop. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think that's exactly right. Um, where like, uh, you know, um, our politics are sort of always, you know, like in order to publish them, uh, whether it's like a political poem or whatever, like it always has to present itself as new, which I think is mm. another kind of relic from, you know, Pound and the modernist. But um, that that kind of impetus is, you know, look at, you know, capitalist innovation where we just got fucking, you know, Twitter stories. Like it's not, <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything, you know? So I think like, um, like, making sure that that reference stays cogent um, in a poetics is really important. The relationship between you know, utopia and poetics, which is kind of what I just got on a little bit. So I would like to hear a different version of that. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know, because I, I think your analysis is like perfectly correct in its own logic. Thank and you. I, I <laughs> well, yeah, the, the relationship between utopian poetics, I think, you know, as much as as closely as you can follow it, which is what I try to uh, to do in my thesis, you know, you come back to and I even I think I even say this in uh, in Ophanim somewhere, which is just like, you know, the, the necessity for the collapse and realization of all literatures, which is a phrase f- lifted from Bonnie, um, which is the idea of like, 
whatever the fun the supposed function of literature is under capital never does that and so hopefully with the abolition of capital you you experience a simultaneous withering away of poetry and so the function of poetry becomes altogether different under a communism you know and so you know, I, I'm specifically right now looking at like the text of Bernadette Meyer's Utopia and the way that this anticipates like a totally different, you know, it does the positive side of Bonnie's negation of capital, you know, you know, as in it, it's still articulating against capital, but it does so in a utopian positivity. Um, and I think she wants to uh, and tries to articulate like, you know, new pleasure principles of, of utopia in like, a, in like a Freudian sense or like a Marcusean sense. Um, and so like, I'm specifically looking at uh, one, one instance and then I'll, then I'll get back to the larger bit, but I just want to find this sure. where, uh, what is it? It's from the poem in there. Uh, a fish that looks like Bishop, debate of the utopians. And it's basically just like Meyer uh, conjuring the ghosts of all these dead authors and senators and figures who just like all enter this, this room and dinner party and just start talking whenever one of them wants to talk about. And it doesn't necessarily follow from the, from the former point of someone. Like, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, and, it's, and so it, uh, it enacts a kind of humor and and irony in its in its logic but it also you know just uh J jameson says in an american utopia i'm sorry i'm going all over the place jameson says that like you know this is one of the funniest things jameson says in this like you know one of one of my friends in my reading group called uh, an american utopia um an elaborate shit post which um i think is the best way to read it which is like you know understanding that like you know Jam jameson does all this with both sincerity and irony kind of like coming back and forth at each other, but also it's like a huge ironizing of the utopian project because he knows of like it's 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 failures from the outset. Um, and so Jameson at one point says that like <laughs> the the perfect encapsulation of utopian literature that we have right now is the high school drama movie. Because because it okay, and I'll get into it. The the high school drama like enacts a form of classlessness, um, in that like you know, it's it's a drama that is not always you know it can be predicated on class conflict. You know, uh, of course there are exceptions to this, but like for the most part, it's it's the mediation of individual desires in a in a uh, presumed group or the mediation of desires between groups, and so this is where. Jameson kind of approaches a Lacanian Marxism, like, you know, in the, in the vein of like Zizek um, or Fisher, and like, you know, says that, you know, <laughs> sorry, um, my, my New York interjections are really <laughs> coming through right now. Um, but he says that uh, the, the utopian function of literature is, is something, you know, where we essentially just live in a Henry James novel. And it's like, just, just characters uh, negotiating desires between each other which is what most movies are and most TV shows essentially, where like, you know, class conflict is not always the, the subject of the literature. Um, whereas like, you know, a socialist realism might want it to be so, you know, a utopian literature doesn't necessarily enact that principle. Um, but 
like, you know, any utopian literature under capital, which doesn't account for it, obviously, like, misses something, because mm. it's, it's that kind of positive utopianism, which, you know, doesn't account for the fact of, like, we're not there yet, um, and, and therefore kind of has an impotency with it, whereas, like, you know, a, a negative, uh, a negative utopianism, like, like Bonnie's rage and, you know, kind of uh, performed anger can articulate against. And like, you know, I, I think Bernadette does it too, but in like a, a more fun way, which I, I, which I don't know how to qualify yet. And I'll, I'll try to get to that soon. But just like, you know, it, it's approaching utopia through a pursuit of pleasure. And you know, the, the kind of, um, oh, there's a Marx quote I wish I could remember right now of just like, fuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think those are the two poles. I almost forget. The beginning question i apologize no this is great so i mean are you would you maybe identify yourself more with this kind of negative utopianism or or this is something you're interested in at least i think so partially because i think it's the correct stance to take you know as a materialist i i, I don't know how i could only um if i if i were to do the more positive utopianism i'd be an idealist right. um and more of a pure hegelian or uh, platonist i guess um and uh, uh, you know, I, I I don't think you can approach uh, a a correct analysis and diagnosis of the moment through poetry or any kind of analysis for that matter w without having materialism, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, and and that's why I think you know the Utopian Project and and the way Jameson takes it up, you know, acknowledges the the fault in the form from the outset, and that's why it's like it's more a satire and not even a utopian proposal at all. Um, at least that text. Right. No, oh, that, 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 no, that's a that's a great answer. Thank you. I don't. I, I just want to keep checking, Dom. You don't have anything to add, maybe. I don't know. Um, no, the only thing I have to add is that I think what you know Matilda just said about this kind of, you know, semi-ironic, semi, uh, you know, earnest um, kind of offering of a utopian vision is one of the reasons why you know precision is so important because mm -hmm. to call you know Jameson a utopian in the way that. Um, you would call, I don't know, like the fucking Habermas or someone um, is like, Hayek. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's nonsense. You know, I mean, you right. have to, you know, be really, really specific in these things. Um, uh -huh. uh, yeah, that's, that's the only thing I had to add. Yeah, no, because I mean, I guess, uh, I'm not sure if you guys, if you're familiar with uh, the, um, I have a book, what's it called? Uh, the, uh, the archaeologies of the future book familiar with that i one? haven't read that one yet oh I yeah i haven't read it either yeah I, I would definitely check this out i mean it sounds like right up that's all property. about the sci-fi literature right yeah it's largely yeah utopian sci-fi there's a lot of stuff on yeah. like this possessed there's also a lot more stuff on um uh oh geez insurrectionary anarchist or i don't know there's, there's a lot of different stuff in it but um yeah definitely even even in this one he's you know he's you know, he's, he's, he's putting the uses of utopian literature, but it's more of a critique than anything. It's not this positive pole. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's not about, you know, getting lost and imagining an actual future. And mm -hmm. Oh, so uh, Matilda and I talk, were talking just before you got on, uh, Dom, about um, kind of uh, the use and maybe the constraints of using a term like militant poetics. Um, I don't know if, if either of you would want to talk about that at all. Yeah, sure. Um, so we had just kind of, you know, spoken a little bit about it, too. Um, and like, there are so many different, you know, kind of phrases that get, you know, thrown around without um, 
really getting into, you know, like a, like a definitional kind of project, um, which is can be good in some ways because it, like, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic or, you know, kind of sectarian in a weird way. Um, but also they do have different resonances. You know, I think that like, you know, a militant poetics um, has much more connotations with, you know, anti-colonialism, um, like Rookie Dalton's um, Militant Poetics in Latin America, uh, where he, he, he articulates this, um, you know, explicitly anti-colonialist, very Fanonian type of, um, you know, relationship between art, consciousness, and, um, you know, the nation state and imperialism. Uh, whereas, you know, like an insurrectionary poetics or something um, feels much more, you know, uh, you know, uh, of like an anarchist, you know, leaning person who is more interested in like, you know, the poetics of a riot or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And a Marxist poetics seems like it might be more interested in labor or, you know, kind of theory in that history. So um, I think they're all useful, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. sure. Bonnie has a funny quote where he's like, you're right to worry that I'm making a fetish of the riot form and in that like he is in a sense which is uh, some, something I get into of like, you know, but B Bonnie's an interesting like anarcho-Marxist weird like blend of, you know, he has these anarchic tendencies, but then he's also an extremely principled Marxist mm. in, in his like analysis. But yeah, I, 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 and I'm still like coming to what to do with that. <laughs> but um, the, the um, like the alchemy of riot being like, you know, one of his phrases of a, uh, you know, like, like he thinks, and, and, and I kind of get into this in my thesis where like, you know, there, there is something fundamentally different in the form of a protest and the form of a riot in that like a protest is always, you know, held within the boundaries and borders of official logic. And like, you know, even at like the, the BLM protests I went to in the summer, you know, I, I was, I remember like a, like a, a bodily fear of, or just like this kind of cold awareness that came over me when I realized, um, you know, the, the crowd had no agency over its own direction and that it was being herded by, by cordons of cops on each side and behind us. Um, and like, you know, the, the kind of anger I, I felt at hearing the words, like, you know, like the crowd got turned around a couple times and there were white supremacist counter protesters. And like the, the rage I felt at like the, wor the words I heard of, um, they're letting us walk in terms of like, we can, we can go this way further. And I was like, dude, the, like the, 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 the being allowed to do something is like the problem of the thing. And, and so like, you know, that, that's where like, you know, there, there is a necessity of like the fetish of the riot almost. And like, you know, it's what you hope all of these uh, uh, fissures kind of erupt into, but like, you know, it, you know, there's always like a, you always wish it could be more organized than it is, I guess, you know. Uh, especially in like instances where you're not organizing it. Um, yeah, but but so that that's something I kind of get into with like, you know, whatever happens in like, you know, a kind of a, the outbreak of a riot being, you know, fundamentally different to, you know, a protest is still within the reality of capitalist realism while a riot is acid communist, you know, and mm -hmm. that it, it transcends or goes beyond official logic and like, you know, state mandated uh, <laughs> like <laughs> behavior, I guess. I don't. I don't know. So would, would this almost be like this moment? You know, you're you're talking about um, earlier, like a withering away of poetry, or poetry kind of becoming something more than just 
this lyric I write on a page and maybe write is sort of this moment where this is erupting or am I wrong? Yeah, perhaps. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I know entirely if I could carry that further though. No worries. <laughs> yeah. So, so you wanna, yeah. Yeah, so this just made me think of something that I had written down for this. Um, and that I think plays off of what, you know, you just said, Matilda, um, where there's, uh, you know, Donovan, what, what, what you just said about like, you know, the withering away of poetry and going beyond what the lyric, you know, form constraints, you know, mm -hmm. actually allow. Um, there are a bunch of writers that I'm really interested in and that, you know, some of whom I've written on, um, like George Oppen, um, and, you know, some of whom I'm writing on right now, like Lowenfels, um, uh, and Walter Lowenfels was like a 1930s, uh, you know, communist organizer. Um, he wrote about mining disasters um, for uh, the PA chapter of the Daily Worker. Um, and later in life, he uh, put out these anthologies um, uh, of indigenous um, and Latin American poets um, and global responses to the overthrow of Allende um, and um, poems from, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of U.S. third world. So like, uh, you know, black and working class you know writers like indigenous writers and stuff um so he's a really cool guy um but he stopped writing um you know for 16 years um and um you know kind of like a george oppen um uh you know stopped writing for what, like 20 years or 18 years or something um and they both stopped to join you know the cpusa and you know organize like you know labor strikes um, and write, you know, speeches for, um, you know, in Oppen's case, a Utica milk strike um, in the um, mid thirties. Uh, and so, so just like, uh, you know, going off of what Matilda said as like this riot as like, uh, like a sublimation of the lyric into, uh, you know, something that goes beyond speech, you know, into uh, like a fist in a cop's face or um, putting on goggles right. so you can, you know, get pepper sprayed and not fall to the ground in pain. Um, like, these poets, um, and there, there, are, uh, um, you know, are many others that that kind of do this too. Um, they they gave up, you know, poetry, and they gave up the lyric form um, because they felt like it wasn't enough. And I think that, you know, in kind of this article I wrote on George Oppen, what I what I argued was that like by stopping writing, you're actually creating a continuity between the poem and the world. And that is a one way to make the you know world into a poem. Um, and so, you know, kind of Oppen himself says, you know, I never stop writing. Um, and he also says, uh, there's, you know, a like strict continuity between my, you know, first, you know, book, um, which was very kind of like, kind of skeletal lyric stuff um, and, you know, Marxism. And um, I just think that those moments are really important to look into because they get glossed over a lot as like, well, he wasn't doing anything, he wasn't writing, so who cares? Um, Explain the gap in your resume. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's when I was, uh, you know, yeah, like killing pigs. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like, I just think that, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, the uses of poetry and what the poem can do. And I think we have to change our definition of what a poem is. Um, and I think that if we want to see poetry wither away, um, not 
in the way that no one is writing anymore, clearly, but that the poem as a piece of congealed labor time um, and, you know, a commodity um, that you can sell like anything else. Um, like if we want to see that end, um, we have to focus on those moments of, you know, the invisibility of the poem and try to mm. find it in a strike, in a riot, in, yeah. um, uh, you know, I mean, like what is more, you know, fucking poetic than, you know, Che Guevara going to fucking Bolivia. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, it's a poetic tragedy, right? I mean, he mm. gets killed. Um, he also was like kind of deeply unprepared because um, he, you know, studied um, uh, the indigenous languages of Bolivia, but ended up in a place where they don't speak Quechua. Um, and so it was very hard to organize the workers, but like he wrote poems. And like, I bet you if he was alive today, he would say that the most you know poetic act that he ever did was, you know, going to fight, you know, colonialism in Africa, going to fight, you know, colonialism, you know, in Bolivia. Um, and that is entirely, you know, contiguous with a project like even a Cuban institution, like, you know, the Casa de las Americas, um, that was, you know, like a foundation, but it was an explicitly anti-colonial and anti-capitalist one. Um, and so these are the kind of moments that I want to try to gather. Um, and that I think are really important to look at because, you know, one riot is not going to, you know, change the world. Uh, but, you know, a collage of riots and strikes and, you know, anti-colonial movements and fucking um, getting rid of the fucking military industrial complex. So third world socialism can actually happen. Mm. Um, these are these moments that we need to fucking gather and like look at the continuities between them. No, that's fantastic. Well, <laughs> so I, I see this, this just great tension that I, I, I've, I've seen in, you know, both your work and, and, and hearing both of you talk. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the, this tension between the poem. I think Bonnie talks about it too in the notes on notes and poetics. Just this, um, yeah. What 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 is a poem? What do we you know? What, what 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 will poetry become? And I guess there's this interesting tension between, you know, the communist utopia is maybe this moment where poetry withers away, but we're striving. At, you know, maybe you're striving after these moments within the present where it's also doing that, or where it maybe can lead to that from this moment. Um, I find that really that, that's really fascinating it's great oh I this is just a quick one I guess um are there any poets right now that you think I mean I, I, there are plenty I'm sure that are really relevant to these kind of discussions that are maybe underappreciated that's a good one I should have prepared a list I think um probably <laughs> I mean to to like self-plug I'm just gonna say Holly Schaefer Raymond oh yeah she's only got like one other book out she, she's got some poems in the anthology of Radical Trans Poetics that's out with Nightboat now. But um, I, I don't know if uh, Mall is Lost is like still available from Adjunct Press. Um, but I recommend this highly, obviously. <laughs> um, also, you can keep going, but also feel free if, if, if after this you think of any, if you want to send it to me. I'd, I'd love to just like yeah. names and, you know. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's been weird because, you know, I, you know, edit Protean. So there's a bunch of really good poems, uh, you know, in my opinion, um, that, you know, we kind of choose me, me and Nikki Walschlager, um, who is, you know, my uh, my co-editor. Um, so just off the top of my head, um, Calypso, new poem um, in Protean, a Devin Springer's poem in Protean. That stuff by Ava Hoffman that Ava's is great. really good. Yeah. Really, really she's good. Got a, she's got a digital chapbook out with uh, the operating system, which is yeah. really good. Yeah. 
Um, but then as far as stuff like that, I think is, you know, really underappreciated that I've also been thinking about for like my work and stuff. I mean, one, you know, this book by Yepes, uh, The Empire of New Memory. Probably just um, all of Yepes's work, I don't think is talked about enough. Yeah. So he you was know. looking ostracized, basically, yeah. by, you know, Western like academia because. Specifically he, like Baraka. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he was panned by Baraka um, and there's a very sad, but also kind of like power move poem. Um, you know, in transnational battlefield where he um, uh, links this, you know, uh, this video, you know, in the actual, like, you know, text of the poem um, where, you know, it's uh, a Baraka basically making fun of him um, for calling Charles Olson an imperialist. Um, and when he wrote this book, you know, Empire of New Memory, um, it was fucking panned. He made no money off of it. Um, you know, thankfully, Chainlinks, uh, which is run by Juliana Spar and someone else, I forget, uh, Jenna Osman, uh, uh, you know, published it, you know, in English. Um, but he takes the very, very brave position of like, you know, this poet who is, you know, widely up as a bastion of anti-imperialism. Yeah. Yeah. And frames it in a way that like made him, you know, not unemployable. He has a job, but nobody fucking reads him. And even in the contemporary scholarship, um, uh, I'm thinking of a book by Edgar Garcia uh, called Signs of the Americas, which is an amazing book um, on Kipu and other indigenous forms of, you know, non like literary communication. What, uh, what is that called? Um, a asemic writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <clears throat> yeah. um, and, you know, he's writing about Charles Olson's Mayan letters, which is what I'm writing about too. And this book is relegated to one footnote where he says, um, you know, Yepes makes this ridiculous critique, you know, of Olsen saying that he is an imperialist when I bet you didn't know that, you know, like indigenous Mexican writing, um, you know, like reinvaded America through the work of Olsen's, you know, Mayan letters. And I was like, are you really comparing, uh, you know, like, you know, a century of imperial violence just in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, Charles Olson literally going against people's will and, like, stealing fucking Mayan ruins with his wife to the fact that he mentions them, you know, in his poetry and you're equating those two things. So I think that Yepes is far, you know, underread. Um, and I also think, uh, I'm just getting into her now, but uh, Dion Brand, um, a Canadian, you know, Caribbean, uh, you know, writer, uh, who basically takes up, you know, the project of like uh, Gossant, um, and like there's a lot of Fanon in there, uh, and talks about the you know transnational roots of you know imperial violence um, and any blackness that kind of travel through. This is like technically an autobiography, but it's basically a you know 200 page you know prose poem. Um, so those are things I've been thinking about a lot too. Oh no, that's fantastic! I'm I'm happy to get all those names, and I'm I want to look into a few of those. Um, yeah, I'll give you a second. Any, any, anyone else that you just want to quickly shout out? Feel free. Uh, all poets in the West should read third world Marxist, like intellectuals who Absolutely. aren't writing poetry. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Vidya Prashad, pr uh, uh, Patnayak, yeah. um, and his wife Utsa Patnayak, um, which I can like spell for you if you want to mention those. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, Maybe send in the chat or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Jose Carlos Mayrategui, um, a Peruvian Marxist from, you know, the late 20s, um, who started uh, the, the 
the Peruvian Socialist Party. Um, uh, Jose Arrico, um, who wrote Marx in Latin America, like all these people are, I think, just like, you know, good uh, ways of getting around this, like, oh, you know, Marxism is for white people or some bullshit like that, uh, because there's lots of anti-colonial histories that I think, yeah. you know, need to be addressed by, you know, Western poets, uh, especially if they, um, you know, have any pretenses towards, you know, liberation of, you know, uh, like oppressed peoples, like how could you write um, about that shit in a way, you know, that you know, fucking Goldsmith or whoever would write when you don't even know what the intellectual and cultural production of these places have said about what, you know, problems you're addressing. I don't know. Yeah. So that would be my strong encouragement. Even, even the infrastructures of this place, like we were talking about CyberSyn recently in Chile, mm -hmm. just like, you know, some people just have no idea of like the technological social forms of socialism that were being developed. And then we're just totally gutted uh, by neoliberal austerity. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And like, I have a lot of reading to do from that list, obviously. So do <laughs> but, I. But uh, I, I think uh, in terms of like theoretical texts and poetry, I would recommend, you know, a lot of my project right now, unfortunately, is like very Eurocentric. Um, but I would, I would highly recommend uh, this text, uh, The Emergence of Social Space, Rimbaud and the Paris Commune. Uh, it's a book by Kristen Ross, which kind of uh, traces the uh, felt solidarity of Rimbaud's non-political poems, non-political in quotes, uh, with the Paris Commune. And like, it does, it does these insane readings of like uh, the erotic body as like political movements across across time and space uh and it, it's really some beautiful prose and uh it, it does some really good um dispelling of like myths about Rimbaud and like a lot of the reasons people don't read Rimbaud or like aren't willing to engage with Rimbaud in a Marxist context is like fixed by this book I think like you know because she obviously like you know denounces his kind of um cross-racial solidarities that he tries to construct but also like C conveys a really strong argument as to like why he was doing that kind of project but like obviously like you know Mauve Sang didn't do a too good a job of it um his poem uh bad blood or whatever um something blood um I, I think we already mentioned Heriberto Yepes uh transnational battlefield and uh empire of neo-memory he has another book in English and another in Spanish I think which um, I forget, once of like threesomes, mothers. Do you know that one, Dom? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I, yeah, that seems right. We can yeah. find out and, you know, let you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, and read Vijay Prashad's books. He fucking rules. He's not a poet, but um, this one I just finished. This is uh, like last book um, that he wrote. And it's just a history of coups. Um, and CIA <laughs> kind of, you know, um, like assassinations and whatever. And um, um, Wendy Trevino's Cruel Fictions. Yes. Great one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, uh, the, I think there's a recording of her reading uh, with Natalie Diaz, the, yes. um, the indigenous poet. Um, and it's really good. And um, on that same topic, I would recommend this anthology, The Sun Unwound, um, which is uh, you know, translations of, you know, indigenous um, 
Mayan, uh, Quechua, uh, and Nahuatl, um, uh, like poems and speeches um, oh. that Aztec priests gave, you know, for example, to the Spanish, you know, colonists. Um, but it's uh, the other half is all a guerrilla poems. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of connecting those histories, um, which I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a dual language. So yes. it's very fun. So you can look up the words if you don't know Spanish or if you, like me, are you know struggling your way through learning it. Um, it's, yeah, it's really good. And it's in the indigenous languages too. Um, so it's really cool. Oh, that's great. Hell yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, did you have another one? Oh, I, if I think of any, I'll let you know, but like, yeah. okay. I like Dom's list a lot better. <laughs> um, okay, well, I, I know Dom, you have to go kind of soon. I had one uh, last question specifically. For, uh, well, it's for both of you. It's for kind of the general left, like, the scene that I, I see around like left Twitter basically for mm -hmm. poetry. Um, uh, I mentioned it in the, in the document, but basically um, it, what really took me um, or what I was really taken by when I started getting into some of the, this kind of poetry is um, honestly, this this bluntness that there was no, you know, beating around the bush around topics of revolution or fury and rage um, and I, I've seen that in a few of your works where you're just, you know, you, it's dark and funny sometimes, or it's, or it's really angry, but, um, has, has it always been like that? Is it easy to do that? Um, and Matilda also, if, if you want to answer that as well. Um, I think it's a really good question. And I think it's kind of like, it made me laugh when I read it, um, in a, you know, in a good way, because it just made me think of all the shit that I wrote, um, you know, when I was in high school and when I was in college, um, I had this little mm -hmm. scene um, that we put out, um, a, you know, a few of my friends and I, and uh, it was so like apolitical and so um, kind of interested in, you know, fucked up, you know, concepts of like beauty and aesthetic, you know, merit and whatever. Um, some of the stuff I feel like was fine, but um, uh, I wrote this really, really embarrassing poem um, that was right after, um, um, the, you know, extra uh, judicial murder of Michael Brown. Uh, and I was like trying to work through these feelings, um, as like a white person. Um, and that poem like ended up getting published by this tiny magazine and I reread it like last year and I was like, God damn, that is so embarrassing. Um, it was trying to do this, like, um, you know, kind of pussyfooting around the issues of race while also trying to, um, you know, be an elegy mm -hmm. for like a person who was killed specifically for their race. And so that to me, reading back that poem um, was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm just gonna try writing out what actually like, you know, happened and how I would tell my friend about it. Um, and stop trying to aestheticize these things because that, you know, gets, you know, dangerously close to, you know, reciting his autopsy as a poem. Yeah, just and that is something that really is some white supremacist fucking bullshit. Um, and so the poem that you mentioned in the document, um, yeah, I, it's part of a thing called three love poems. And I just thought it was kind of funny to, um, be as blunt as humanly possible about what I wanted to do um, and what I think should happen. And 
um, it was easy to write. Um, and I think, you know, your question made me think of, well, has, you know, you can go back throughout, you know, at least through the 20th century, which is what I know best, um, and find very, very blunt poems, especially in Communist Party magazines and whatnot. Um, some of them, you know, are kind of cringy, um, especially when it comes to race stuff. Um, I'm thinking here of, uh, what's his face? Um, uh, the fuck? Why can't I think of him? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get back. But he, he writes about like, you know, I am like, you know, the black man or whatever, just like dumb, dumb shit. Like, yeah. Like, white, a, obviously. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but publishing, I think is where it gets a little bit more dicey because I think it's very, very easy for some place like the Poetry Foundation or uh, Rattle Poetry, which is literally run by a fucking landlord, um, to like appropriate something that has the veneer of, you know, uh, uh, like radicalism. It becomes a little more complicated for uh, like a foundation like that to publish you if you specifically name the antagonism of communism. But it gets really, really hard if you go beyond that um, and say, try to write, you know, an anti-Zionist poem, for instance, like that is a fucking hard thing to publish as a poet. It's also a hard thing to say as a professor, as we have seen in the case of uh, a student Salida, who had his tenure revoked um, as a Palestinian professor for speaking out against, you know, the Israeli, you know, occupation of Palestine. Um, so like there are stakes that have morphed, I think, over time um, because of the kind of, you know, like corporate of poetry that wants to, for instance, say, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, and then put out a shitty two, two paragraph statement about, you know, like police murder. Um, but that is, is, is so far below what the minimal demand should be. Um, and, you know, I think that if we end up writing blunt poems that can't get published, um, we'll just fucking publish them ourselves. Who gives a shit? Uh, and that's what okay. most of us have done in this case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's very stupid for anyone to think that they can actually make a living off of writing poetry. So yeah. I think that, you know, obviously it sucks to have to write poems while you're, you know, sitting in an office or, you know, serving food or whatever. Um, but like, do you really want to have to like compromise whatever shit you think mm-hmm. just to get you know, a write up on the Harriet blog. We have this thing in our book um, called Gallup, Gallup Poetics, Poetics, yeah, um, which is a series of po- uh, poems that we, you know, co-wrote, um, just kind of making fun of those like, you know, liberal motherfuckers that think that, you know, they put, you know, hashtag BLM in their bio and then write a poem about like, um, you know, how fucking Lenin is a fascist or something and how those two <laughs> things like, totally was stalin black <laughs> he was a poc because he was georgian uh, <laughs> <laughs> um uh but but you know it's i don't know if i want to call them like satires but they're just like kind of pissed off um yeah know. i don't even know how to categorize them but your your gallop poetics ones are my favorite they're like the funniest in the book and also like the most angry <laughs> thank you i was so pissed when i was writing them there was one where it's like uh <laughs> You know, for every line you write, this motherfucker gets a drop of insulin. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. That one's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I was just like, like if you really get, you know, the image of how these things are related, 
um, yeah. and really kind of put it into like a metaphorical space where there is your publisher holding a fucking, you know, IV above a patient who needs his insulin and saying, you know, you better give me, uh, you know, two stanzas, uh, you know, per drop of insulin um, or this motherfucker died. <laughs> like, that's kind of what the situation actually is. Right. It's an, it's an insane logic that like doesn't compute whatsoever, but it's like yeah. not too far from what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it, that you, like in situations like that, there is cause for bluntness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that like to make that your sole principle, you know, is not good because, right. you know, and I, I feel like I fall into that more than Matilda does because I think Matilda, you're more interested in kind of like psychodynamics, mm-hmm. um, which are a bit more complicated than saying like, we need to drag the bosses into the induction furnace. Um, right. uh, I wish I could get to there. <laughs> <laughs> I no, do but it's some good that the, this kind of mix of things because <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah. you look back at some of the shit that was published throughout, you know, the height of the you know communist party and stuff, and a lot of it's really cool, but some of it fucking sucks because oh yeah, it's just like a you know pissed off text message that you would send to your friend. That's like Diane De Prima has a lot of like really good like home runs, but then there are a <laughs> lot which is like, all right. Yeah, and then she has one just like you have to eat like two pounds of carrots a day, or you're hungry right. because you had too many calories or whatever. But even like her, her kind of like virtualized indigenous solidarities are, are also questionable. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and yeah, so bluntness can like you know easily become, um, especially if you're like you know a white poet, um, you know assumptions about you know like a racialized other or like oh. a disabled other or. Um, you know, uh, the subjectivity of a fat person, you know, in, in Deprima's case. And so that's where right. bluntness can get kind of risky too. Yeah, um, I, I guess we can kind of wrap it up. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this. I had a lot of fun and I like learned a lot and all that jazz. Yeah, this was, this was lovely. Thank you yeah. so much for asking us to do it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so it'll probably be a, a little bit, um, I'll, I'll start editing the transcript pretty soon. Um, there's a lot here, so it'll maybe take me a little while. Um, yeah, no rush. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I'll make sure to send you guys, uh, both of you, the a copy before I like put it out anywhere. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah, and if you have any questions about like, um, like, like names. Names we dropped. Yeah, <laughs> the big ones. Like whatever, just feel free. We'll, we'll try to Absolutely. figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, okay. Well, I hope you guys have a great uh, rest of your day. I don't know. Um, thank you so much for doing this again. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Thank you guys. See ya. <laughs> Bye. Bye.